off South Henry Road, and there was no shade at this venue at all, and uh, it was just sweat and just sheets coming off of my forehead, and the groom, like in the middle of the ceremony, is doing that, and just, ah, it was just brutal, man. Yesterday was, yesterday was pretty intense, even in the shade, you know, you were sweating pretty bad, so thank God for right guard. Not sure how much good it did yesterday for me, but, you know, I was in it to win it. So it was a beautiful wedding. It was. It was a beautiful wedding, beautiful reception. It was just really, really awesome. And uh, one of the great perks uh, as, a, as a DJ is that you get a lot of free food, right? That's a total score, and it's almost always grilled chicken and tri-tip. So I'm probably going to have a quadruple bypass in about six months, but it'll be worth it, I think. Maybe not. Somebody in here is going, no, it's not. I had one, believe me. Um, good morning again. Last week we began a, a little mini-series within our series. We've been working our way through the book of Acts in a series entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. And um, we crossed over into chapter 12 and began a little mini-series entitled, The Futility of Fighting Against God. And uh, last week, during our time together, we learned about how kings and world leaders and authors and others, general people, um, have pretty much, I mean, from the beginning, pretty much set themselves against the Lord in battle through their sin, rejection of him, rebellion, and have all lost. No one throughout all of history has won against God and no one ever will in the future. And so we studied about kings from the Old Testament and then we looked at some figures like Hemingway and others that we're familiar with and just looked at how they were brought to ruin through their warfare against our holy, almighty God. We learned about King Herod the Great um, and how he fought against God. And lost. You may remember if you were here last week, we talked about him in some detail, and he was a bloodthirsty, uh, you know, violence kind of oriented king who sacrificed and killed his own family members, his own children, to um, protect his throne. He was one of those paranoid types. And uh, so we studied that guy, and uh, we began to study his grandson, uh, whose name was King Herod Agrippa I. Uh, that is one of the main characters of chapter 12, Agrippa the first. I'll probably just refer to him as Agrippa throughout the morning. But we're going to be looking at this king again. We did last week to some degree, but we're going to be looking at him again. And uh, how, uh, you know, we looked last week at how he became king over Israel and then how he declared war against God when he attempted to bring Christ's church to an end. And, and how did he do that? He arrested apostles, even killed one uh, named James, who was the brother, the older brother of the apostle John, who wrote uh, the Gospel of John and the epistles and Revelation. And so he had this person put to death with a sword, ran him through. I, I would imagine some think he was beheaded. I, I don't know, but I know he was killed by the sword. And then he went ahead and arrested Peter because Peter was the top apostle. Peter was Jesus' right-hand guy. And, uh, and so he was known as sort of the head apostle, and Herod thought to himself, if I get this guy and take this guy out, 
wow, that's really going to catapult me to the highest levels of fame and glory amongst the Jews, Jews being the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin who despised and hated Jesus, murdered him, killed him, hated the church, killed Stephen, um, brought the apostles before them numerous times through trials and things like that. And so he kind of hatched this idea to arrest Peter and, and maybe put him to death, and that would get him so much favor and, and glory amongst the religious people who really didn't like him all that much. He really needed their favor uh, to, to remain in good standing with Rome because he may have been the appointed king over most of Palestine and that whole area, but he was still in a little bit of hot water back home in Rome, and so he needed their approval. Um, and so we, we sort of left off with, with him putting Peter in prison, and, and, and he was hoping that he could bring Peter out at a, an appointed time, a time that he figured out, like right after Passover, where there would still be multitudes of pilgrims and, and Jewish people in Jerusalem. And so he wanted to bring Peter out at uh, the perfect moment during that, not to frustrate their worship or to distract, but at the point where it ends, like the hour after, uh, so that he could bring Peter out and have sort of a Jesus-like thing take place. You, you may recall in the Gospels how Jesus was arrested and tried at night, and he was brought out before the people after uh, a little bit of time. He was brought to Herod, then later he was brought out before the people and presented by Pilate. And the people cried out for his death. And so Herod Agrippa is, is aiming for the same thing. He's aware of what happened in the past. He's familiar with it. And he has seen great success in these things. And so he's aiming to bring Peter out before a multitude. And he's hoping that the same sort of verdict will be rendered that was rendered against Jesus about seven years. Maybe seven or eight years earlier. As we continue... Through the rest of chapter 12, we will discover three reasons why. We covered a number of reasons why last week, but this week we're going to discover three reasons why it is futile to fight against God. And at the same time, mostly at the end, after learning about these three reasons why it's futile to fight against God, we will also be prompted and made aware of why we need so desperately to repent of our rebellion, to repent of our rejection of God in Christ, and to submit our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to believe on him for salvation, for the rescue of our lives and souls from impending doom, which we have rightfully earned from God by our sin and through our sin. And so those are the main things that are going to come out. Um, I'd like to go ahead and read through our entire text and then pray one more time and then we'll begin to examine and apply it. We'll get to work. I'm going to pick up at verse 5. Um, I know we covered it last week, but I think it's imperative that we cover it today too. So verse 5 all the way through 25. Bear with me as I read this. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer... For him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door 
uh, centuries before the door, uh, were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. Uh, the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. That's interesting. And they went out and went uh, along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, uh, where many were gathered together and were praying. Um, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came uh, to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them, he, uh, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, he did not find him. And did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Last section. <clears throat> now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oracle to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god, and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give glory Give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. <clears throat> That's gross. Uh, but the, <laughs> can't ever get through that without thinking how disgusting that is. Um, but the word, now listen to this, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Father, what a splendid, marvelous passage this is. What a, what a story this is and what truths it contains. Uh, Lord, we are so often dull of hearing, uh, dull of application, uh, dull with our attention span. 
Lord, help us in this divinely appointed moment to hear from you, to learn from you, to take these radical, life-changing, soul-annihilating uh, and resurrecting, sin-destroying word, these truths that are here, God, apply them, apply them deeply to our hearts, Lord. Um, God, it is easy in America, it is easy in California, it is easy in Modesto, it is easy at all churches at Redemption Hill to come in as this particular person and to leave as that same person. Lord, that is not your intention here. God, you aim to change us, to transform us, to sanctify us right into the image of your Son, and faith comes by hearing. And may it be so as we listen to your word. May we be changed. May we be brought closer to the image of your Holy Son, whom redeemed us who is the perfect image. We love him this morning, Lord, and we pray that we would grow in our grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ this morning. Maybe there's some here that do not know you. God, I pray right now in this very moment that they would come to know you. Christ, that you would do a regenerative work in their life, that you would reach down out of heaven and pluck that nasty stone heart right from their chest and put in a heart of flesh that you would make them a new creation and sanctify your saints today Lord build up your saints for the ministry of the gospel today we submit ourselves to you Lord we submit all that we are to you right now bless us in this time and may you be blessed by our response humble response through faith. And we pray these things in the marvelous name of Jesus Christ. As we sing, as Aaron proclaimed, the name above all names, the highest name, above the Pope, above the President, above the angels, above the devil, the name above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't even think I want to go any farther than after that prayer. Amen. Let's get out of here and go have lunch. Right? Man, he's good to us. Now, let's take a look at this text. Point one, God's power cannot be contested. Do you hear me? God's power cannot be contested. Oh, have they tried? Oh, did I try to contest his power for two-thirds of my life? It cannot be contested. And that will be seen through verses 5 through 19. I'm going to begin to kind of work these verses. I'll start with verse 5 again. So Peter was kept in prison. Here we see an example of man's power. Man says, I can stop this gospel. I can stop its progression by taking out its number one leader. This is what Agrippa's attempting to do. He's trying to exercise his power, and he has a great deal of it, mind you, but he's trying to exercise his power to thwart, to stop, to put an end to God's gospel, which is being brought forth by what? His power. That's what's taking place here. So Peter was kept in prison. 
And what happens? But earnest prayer for him was made by the church. Now, we have nothing in the text that seems to point to some idea that prayer was the church's last resort. How often is that the case in our lives? We have a problem, we have a dilemma, something happens, a tragedy strikes, and the first thing we do is we go and we attempt in our flesh, we might even gather people to go and we try to overcome the situation. We try to find a solution, whatever it is. We do the math, uh, we estimate, and we try to figure out how to overcome this situation. And so often, prayer is the last resort. We have nothing in the text that seems to indicate that prayer was the church's last resort. I, I'd like to think because of the first century church and how marvelous it was and how sort of untainted it was at this point, not that there weren't sinners in it, it was comprised of regenerate sinners, but I'd like to think that it was their first uh, thing that they went to, that they, they, they made it their first line of defense. But as I said, that's not always true for us. We tend to go to prayer last when we've exhausted all of our other options. And we can learn from this example here that it ought not to be so. That in all situations, in all cases, I mean, what does the Apostle Paul says? He prays without ceasing. He didn't say just pray when the bottom falls out. Just pray when cancer strikes. Just pray when a loved one passes away. Just pray when the Supreme Court exercises its authority over the population and makes the choices that they make and the president does things or whatever or countries are doing things and there's war. He doesn't say pray when those things happen. He says pray continuously. But we should first and primarily be people of prayer as the first century church was. Now we tend to pray lastly. We tend to pray after we've gathered people and tried to do the numbers and tried to accomplish something through those means or whatever, and, and yet we see an example here where the first century church prayed. We tend to pray when we reach the end of our rope, don't we? Boy, we do everything. And we get to the end of the rope, and there's about an inch left, and we're hanging on, and that's when we cry out, God, I need you now. He's thinking, that you needed me when you were at the top of the rope, but you waited to get to the bottom. Now, remember, gym class, I could never climb that dumb rope. Right? We wait till we get to the bottom edge of it. It's pretty incredible how we are in terms of when we see God in these types of situations. We pray when we begin to realize um, that unless God intervenes and exercises his power, I mean, that's, that's what we wait for. You know, we get ourselves to this point when we cannot achieve, the per we cannot get this thing done, we cannot come up with a solution uh, until we are made to realize that unless God does something, there's nothing that can be done. I think in some ways that's what was happening with the church in this particular instance, that they knew that Herod was powerful, that they knew that there was no fleshly way out. Get, how could they get him out? Look at how he was guarded. You know, and he had the most powerful king in the whole region, had put him in prison, and he had the Romans behind him and all of these things. And It's quite interesting when you think about it. We begin, or we actually go to God when we realize that there are no other avenues and ways to accomplish, overcome, defeat, gain victory, move forward over the disease or whatever it is. And I think in some ways that's true of this text. I think they were first, their first response was prayer. 
But I think they also realized that there was no other way. What were they going to do? Go down there and march around in front of the jail with picket signs? What would they do? Sign petitions? The time was of essence here. The time for Herod to strike was during Passover. All the Christians, I think, believers in the church realized that. They couldn't wait to sign petitions and do these things. And I think they came to some knowledge and understanding that, man, unless we do, unless we pray, unless we call out to God, who is all-powerful, who, they understood, his power cannot be contested, unless we do that, it ain't happening, man. Our beloved apostle and brother and teacher, he's going to be killed just like our beloved apostle James was killed. There's an interesting parallel here. This idea that you get to the end of your rope before you pray, this idea, it, it transfers, it translates over into biblical salvation. One must be brought to the end of their rope before they're ripened unto salvation. You cannot receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, make Him your Lord, if you have any human ability or power or effort. If you believe that you can somehow still save yourself in some sense, you are not ready for the salvation of the Lord. We have to be brought to the end of our rope. And God does a darn good job of bringing people to the end of their rope, doesn't he? He certainly did me. Got me to a, a place of realizing the depravity and the sin and the utter hopelessness of my flesh got me to the point of crying out, saying, I have no power to save myself. There's nothing that I can do. I am toasted. I am doomed. I can't do anything for myself. Hence the moment where one cries out to God for rescue. I can't save myself. But I heard one time in a sermon that all things are possible through God, especially in terms of salvation, because that's what Jesus was talking about in that text. You see the parallel there? These people were kind of brought to a point of there's nothing we can do. Totally parallels biblical salvation. And yet how many people believe in their hearts that they've played some sort of role in their salvation? I at least prayed the prayers. I at least walked the aisle. I did something. I exercised my free will. Oh man, do you not understand that your free will is tainted by sin? you have a free will that is completely bound by sin, that it only chooses to do that which caters to and feeds the flesh. There's nothing about your will that wills yourself towards a holy and perfect God. You are wrecked. You must be. A person must be brought to the end of their road before they are ripened unto salvation. Why? So that no man may boast in heaven. I got myself saved because I prayed a prayer I walked an aisle. I was close, but you know what? I realized some things, and, and I just prayed that little prayer, and I just did my little bit. There's an awesome parallel in the text there. I love that parallel. But they were praying for Peter as he was in jail. Praying, 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 praying. And I believe that the church realized and knew that God's power could not be contested. They realized and knew that if something was going to happen, if the situation were to turn, if it were to change, it would only happen through the hand of Almighty God, who is powerful. 
Did you hear what I said? How many obstacles, how many dilemmas, how many things do you have in your life where you realize there is nothing you can do? Do you think that aligning yourself against forces, governmental forces, and, and petitioning and arguing your point, do you think that that's going to have a long-term effect against our federal government? I'm just using this as an example because of what's happened over the last week. It's not going to have an effect. Do you realize that a government was opposing the church and righteousness and the gospel in your text? And what did the people do out of response? Well, that's ridiculous that the court would do this, and we're going to go down there, we're going to petition, we're going to tell them all our hearts and minds, and we're going to say all these things and all that. I'm not saying it's not a good thing to, to voice your opinion. You live in a free country. Make no mistake, this was a government that opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as most governments opposed Jesus Christ. And what was the response of the people? Posting endlessly on Facebook. I'd be the first to do that. Got him! I got him. That'll change the world. That'll change maybe 1,600 people's opinions, because that's the, my friend base. Actually, seven, you know, I have 1,600 friends on Facebook. Uh, you know, 1,550 of them. I don't know. Friends, God's power cannot be contested. I could end this sermon on that note. It cannot be contested. Has he not proven that it cannot be contested? It cannot be. He's the one that we go to. Six. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, what, the night that the Passover was ending, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. What do we got here? What are the details? <laughs> this is fascinating. Peter was asleep. Who sleeps on the night of their execution? Think about that. I mean, the guards were probably nervous. Oh, can you believe what's going to happen? Look at him. He was asleep between two soldiers. He was bound with how many chains? Two? two? <laughs> yeah. Are you listening this morning? Two chains, not one chain. One chain's enough, right? How do you get out of one chain? Houdini? Eh. He's got two on him. He was also guarded by two sentries at his cell door. So they had guards at the cell door making sure that if something happened, there's no way he could get past the cell door. So he is what? Facing imminent death, but he's asleep between two soldiers. He's bound with two chains, and he's guarded to the max. Now, how does one in his situation have what seems to be such peace? Well, it's simple. Jesus had promised Peter <coughs> that he would die in an old age. John 21, 18. Peter was not old here. Peter was still younger. And he remembered the promise of Jesus. Ah, you're going to kick the bucket when you get older. Well, okay. I'll try to remember that. That might come in handy because gospel preachers are always threatened. And so what does he do? He banks on the promise 
that he was given by his Lord, by his Savior, Jesus Christ. He was to pass away at an older age. Not to mention that he had been freed from prison before. You've probably read it earlier in Acts. We studied it many months ago. That he had been broken out by an angel before. Came to him and released him in the night. He went right back into Solomon's portico the next day and started proclaiming the gospel. So what did Peter do? Peter did something that we all need to do if you're in Christ. We need to trust the promises of God, which are throughout Holy Writ. There are promises in the Word that He will bless and keep us, that He will bring to fruition His marvelous plan of sanctification, salvation, all of these wonderful promises. See, Peter banked on the promise. He's not going to die young. He's going to die when you're older. What else did he do? He remembered God's faithfulness. Has God been faithful to you? Been faithful to me. There's been times where I've questioned his faithfulness because certain things have happened and, and things aligned a certain way. And, you know, and there was trouble, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's not being faithful. One thing that you can always bank on is your salvation. No matter what life hits you with, you can always reflect upon the glorious work of salvation that he's done in your life, that he's continuing to do daily. Even when the, the worst case scenario is hitting you, question, you're not being faithful to me. Look at the stuff that's going on. I can't handle it. Reflect upon the marvelous, miraculous work that he's done in your soul by regenerating you, saving you, making you his family member. There's no greater miracle. But how often do we, when we're struck by these times, imagine yourself in his shoes. And, and here you are, and, and you're asleep. <laughs> Who sleeps during this? Put yourself in his shoes. I know I've been biting off all my nails that night. Like a typewriter. And he's asleep and, and these things. And, and you know what else is interesting about this? There's more details further down. He's in his jammies. He's got like a big gospel onesie on. It says, the angel tells him to put his cloak on. He's in his jammies. His SpongeBob on the front, you know. He's chilling. And he's got, what else does it say downstream a little bit? He's got no sandals on. Can you imagine what that dank, nasty cell must have been like? You know, back in those days, they just took a cave that already existed and put bars in. That was the jail. They didn't build jails like we have. They didn't have San Quentin's and Pelican Bay. They had holes in the side of the mountain that were nasty with bats and bat feces and all that garbage. And they just put bars in the front and called it a prison. And then they would take people and lock them away. So he's in this thing. He's asleep between two soldiers. He's chained with two chains. There's guards all over the place. He's in his onesie. He's got no shoes on. Why? Because he trusts in the promises of God, he believes God's faithfulness. What a lesson to us. I pray that it would be the same for us. That whenever we're challenged or pressed, whenever the world comes in on all sides, when the government comes, whatever it is, when it comes, the first thing we would do is pray. The second thing we would do is remember God's promises in his word and remember God's faithfulness. Examine his track record from your own life. Remember what he's done. 
how he's moved in your life and gotten you from point A to point B to point C. And he moves you, and he's always moving. He's always at work, and he's always faithful. He always comes through. Seven and eight. And behold, I love that. Behold, hey, everyone that's reading this, I need to get your attention again. And behold, the office is saying, oh, this is going to be good. He was the one that read it originally. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. Came right in. Stood right next to him. And light shone in the cell. And then it says, and the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, uh, Dress yourself. Okay, time to get out of the jammies. Put on your cloak. And what? Put on your sandals. And then it says he did so. Peter did it. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. I think one of the things that's, that's extraordinarily fascinating about this is the depth of Peter's sleep. Because light shone in the cell and that didn't wake him. Woke Mary up. And the angel came and said, you were going to bear a child. Son of the Most High. She saw the light. Peter's got light in the cell. 10,000 Sylvanians going off. He's getting a tan. He's in a tanning room. Right? comes out, it's all orange. I've done it before. It doesn't work with me. It looked like George Hamilton, like a suitcase after about three visits. But he doesn't even wake up when the light comes into the room. It actually says that the angel had to do what? Prod him. Nudge him. Hey! Get up! That's how asleep he was. How at peace was this brother of ours during this particular situation? You know, I, I think that our tranquilizer, sleep-aid-addicted culture, which has obviously come into the church too, could learn a few things from this great example here. That the, let's apply it to the church, that the Christian who focuses regularly upon the promises of Holy Writ Scripture and who reflects upon God's faithfulness, guess what that Christian tends to do very well? Sleep. That particular Christian doesn't need Lunesta. That particular Christian doesn't need Xanax for their anxiety. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't I use for those things. God sometimes does some amazing things through medication. I myself spent a tremendous amount of years on antidepressants. And they were helpful for a while. And then something happened and they weren't helpful. They started making me sick. And I knew that that was God saying, you're not with that. I'm, I'm used exercising my power here in a different way. So I'm not condemning the use of those things. I think God ordains the use of those things at times. But there's something to be said about the Christian who focuses on the promises of God's word and focuses on his faithfulness, his track record, those people tend to sleep well. They do. It's a fact. And so what do we do? We focus there 
Well, no, the first thing we do is go down to the doctor and have them write us a prescription for Lunesta because we're experiencing sleeplessness. Well, why don't we try praying first? And why don't we try reflecting upon some of these other things first? Maybe the answer's there. I think the answer's always there in some way, shape, or form. We can learn from this. He was in a deep sleep so that, so much to the point that the light didn't wake him, he had to be nudged. The fact that an angel came in and did this to begin with is just a miracle in and of itself. This is a supernatural being that came and visited him. That's fascinating. I've never seen an angel of you. Never have. I'm not sure if I want to. Ah, right? Maybe. Fascinating. Verses 9 to 11. And he went out and followed him. Okay? Peter did what the angel said. He put on the stuff. He put everything back on. Switched out his clothes. Wrapped his cloak around him. Put his shoes on. And then it says, and he went out and followed him. He obeyed. This is a good thing here. He obeyed the angel that had been sent by God. That's always a good thing. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. Now that makes total sense since he just had a pretty incredible vision. Not long before this, he had a vision before he went up to Caesarea and preached the gospel to Cornelius and his household. He had this amazing vision of the sheep being lowered and, and all these animals on it, which represented kind of food, but really they represented Gentile people. And he had this vision. And so Peter has had these, he'd been busted out of jail before by an angel. So he's had these angelic experiences, these vision sorts of things. And so the first thing he does is he thinks, man, this can't be real. This is probably just one more vision. That's what he thinks to himself. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real because he thought he was seeing a vision. He had these experiences. And then it says, when they had passed the first and second guard, okay, they got past the sentries. <laughs> Chains came off all that, got past those two guys who were probably sleeping next to him. I don't know what happened with them. And then he gets past the first and second guard, the guys that are guarding the entrance. It says they came to the iron gate leading into the city. Okay, so take notice of how the jails were not within city limits. They were not. They were considered to be places of uncleanliness and, and, and so on and so forth. And so they were outside of the city gates. And so they came as Golgotha was, and it's precisely why they killed Jesus. So they wouldn't crucify people within the holy city. And so the jail was outside of the city, and they, they came up to the gate that was going into the city. And it says it opened for them of its own accord. Okay, so the gate had a Stanley opener on it, right? I mean, that's pretty interesting, right? The angels actually open the gate. Just, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for, kind of force thing going on there, right? You know, and boom, the gate. I mean, that's amazing to me. I could stand in front of a gate for hours and just not find there and move. And here this gate, heavy iron gate into the city. These were gates that were meant to keep enemies away. And so think about this. This thing just swings open. It welcomes them. Come on into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. No assistance whatsoever by any physical thing whatsoever. It opens on its own accord. And then they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. So the angel brought him out. 
brought him through the gate, walked with him several feet or whatever into town, and then disappeared. And it says, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, Peter was a very, very, um, oh, what's the word for it? Perceptive person. He came to this realization. Okay, this is not a vision. I am actually, I can tell there's ground under my feet. The being that was with me is no longer here. He's gone. And so, wow. And then he realizes too, man, I have been rescued by the Lord. The Lord has sent an angel to rescue me, to save me from who? Agrippa. He knew what Agrippa was after. <clears throat> and from who? The Jews, the people. They wanted him dead. This is really a, a statement of worship here is what this is. He doesn't ascribe any of it to himself or to happenstance or to the laws of nature, to a magnetic field. It's amazing how we spin the amazing works of God into scientific things, reductions, and, and these things. Some of the things, God just does things. And then we try to explain them away. Well, Peter doesn't do that at all here. He simply proclaims, man, I've been rescued by the Lord. I've been rescued by the Lord. He sent an angel to save me. This is a, a statement, a worshipful statement, a statement of praise. Twelve, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Why do people got to have all kinds of different names? Where many were gathered together and were praying. Okay, so Peter comes to his senses. I've been rescued. This is not a vision. And the first thing he does is he goes to the upper room. You remember the upper room? That's where this was. Uh, John Mark's mother is the one that owned that house. It was a little base for the Christian church. Even during the ministry of Jesus, they went there several times. That's where they had the, the, the Last Supper. And so Peter goes to that place where he knows that there's going to be believers there. He can go there and share with them what's happened, what's going on. He can go there and be prayed for. He can go there and, and assure the believers that he's been free. I love that. He goes to that place of familiarity. He goes to that place of comfort. He goes to that place where he knows his brothers and sisters will be. How often do we do, we do that during these sorts of things? How often do we bring our problems and issues and struggles and dilemmas and things into the house of God where we come and gather where we have this fellowship and we share those things right in here. We know that this is a safe place. We know that this is a place where there will be understanding, where there will be grace, where there will be mercy, where there will be godly counsel, where there will be some degree of comfort. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I step into the house of God around my church family, I, I, I feel I feel a, a sense of security around the numbers of Christ. And I know my security comes from Jesus. But man, there's power in, in the group. There's a greater manifestation, if you will, of the presence of the Lord in the group. Where does Peter go? He's been locked up for a couple days. Nasty prison cell. They were going to kill him. He knew it. There's nothing in the text that says he felt bad about that, but I can't imagine he was thrilled about what he was facing. 
he was definitely thrilled that he'd been rescued. He wanted to share that knowledge, that, that information. But he went to that place of familiarity. He went to that place of comfort. He went to that place where he had been so many times before. And what did he discover when he got there? Well, first he discovered that the gate was locked and he couldn't get in. But in a few moments, he found out that they were in there praying. That's what he discovered. That's what he heard. They were in there praying. Again, it says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered, where many were gathered together and praying. That is the house with the upper room, that familiar place the church used it so often. Verses 13 to 50. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, many of these homes had these courtyards. This one did. This particular woman had some decent money and had a house with an upper room, a big upper room, and a courtyard and a gate and all that. And, and uh, there were people that had that kind of money then and had houses like that. She had a pretty nice place. I don't know if I'd go Del Rio action on it, but it was a pretty sweet path. And so he shows up and he knocks at the, the door of the, of the gateway. It looks like it's got a gateway entrance. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the how awesome is that? It's you! Hey, I need to get in. She she jams. I mean, she's totally blown away in her joy. She's up there praying with these folks, I would imagine. And for whatever reason, she wanders downstairs or whatever, and she's in this courtyard or in this gateway. She hears the knocking. She goes down, and she can see and hear that it's him. She hears his voice. And Peter's got a distinct voice, whatever. Hey, what's happening, you know? She recognizes the voice, and what does she do? She probably looks at him, or based off of his hearing his voice alone, she turns around and jams and goes upstairs. She doesn't even let him in. Now, he had some joy because he'd been released from prison and rescued, but I think she had greater joy that that had happened. Look at the example of her love for him and excitement out of him being rescued. She was overjoyed to the point of not even letting the dude in. Split. Took off. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And what did the believer say to this nice, young, pleasant, you know, lovely servant of the Most High God who was the one that went and answered the door? They said to her, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. They're praying, right? They're praying for this to happen, and then it happens. I'm like, you're out of your mind. How often does that happen? You know, we pray, our prayers answered. No, that didn't happen. Uh, standing before you. No. I mean, she comes in, she gives a little brief testimony, and ba-boom. You're out of your mind. They basically called her crazy. They called her nuts. You're nuts. You're out of your mind. And she didn't go, they called me crazy. I'm going to go sit in my room, get my My Little Ponies out. She didn't do that. She what? Look at the text. She kept insisting. No, he's there. You're nuts. No, he's there. You're nuts. No, he's there. You're nuts. 
She kept insisting, and so then they began to lighten up a little bit. Okay, maybe she's not nuts. It's got to be his angel. That's what they said. It's got to be his angel. And interestingly, that's parallel to a text that kind of talks about how people have an angel prescribed to them. This might be a true reality that we have angels that, that are kind of assigned to us. What is the angel's purpose? Yeah, it's a message bearer of God, but also to protect and, and, and guard the sheep of God, his people. That's what angels do. They are there to serve us. Isn't that an amazing thing? That you have probably an angel that's assigned to you, that guards over you. How many times have you ever suspected the presence of an angel? I can remember one time that I did where my dog was chained up in the back of a truck and we were on a dirt road driving and the dog jumped out while we were driving. I don't know why. and Couldn't keep up with the truck. For a mile or two. You've seen the movie Vacation. And a tree fell. A big tree fell in the, on the dirt road. Right there. And made a stop. And I thought, what in the heck? And I looked back and the dog's fur was all pulled up over its head. You know? And I thought, oh, my dog jumped out. Now, I don't know if there was an angel there that caused that. But for crying out loud, the first thing I said to myself, that was a miracle because my dog would have died. God loves my dog. But think in terms of, of how often danger has been diverted or whatever. Have you ever had any of those experiences? Uh, I remember another time uh, when I was coming home from Easter celebration. I was a Christian at the time. And uh, this was a weird thing. We, we, my family lived out in Don Pedro out on the lake out there. We had some family out there. Cameron used to live out there. We were coming home on 132, which is a death trap. Please, let's pray that they put in a divider on that thing. Are you kidding me? You know how many people get killed on that dumb road? So we're coming back on it, and uh, so we're driving west, and this car just flies by us like 100 miles an hour, because I was doing probably 60. I mean, and when a car goes by, it goes, you know, that's the wind. You know that there's trouble, and he's going into oncoming traffic. Traffic, I can see the traffic. And I'm thinking, he's not going to make it. And then all of a sudden, I'm watching him as he goes by. So he comes across, and then he goes onto the shoulder and passes all of these cars. Then he goes all the way over to the shoulder on oncoming, and then I see the explosion. And he went directly into uh, a Chevy S10 Blazer at 100 miles an hour, and the other guy was doing 60. And I was close enough where I could see the back end of his car come straight up off the ground like this. And there was immediate fire and smoke. It was unbelievable. Well, we were about the second car on the scene, pulled over into an orchard, and you know sometimes adrenaline just takes over. And so I had my family with me. I jumped out. And I ran over there and started punching the window of the car that caused the wreck to try to get the guy out because his car was on fire. Both cars were on fire. And so I'm punching the window with all I got. And my hands bouncing off, but it's like kryptonite. So I put my foot through it. And it one kick went right there. He totally laid open my leg. And then I start wrestling this guy out. He's like jelly. Because he was drunk. I mean, he was drunk out of his mind. And he's like jelly. He's strapped in. I can't get him out. He's all folded up under the seat, up under the dash. Smoke's coming out. There's flames under the dash. He's getting burned. And I'm freaking out because I can't get this guy out. Fire starts coming out from the dash. It's pouring out of the hood. And I'll never forget. By this time, a couple other people had joined in and were trying to peel the door open and trying to help me get him out. 
And, um, and there's fire, literally, now on the dash, on his legs, everything, and he's burning. He's going to burn alive if we don't get him out. And so I'm, I'm, I'm like crying because I don't want him to die. The other guy over here is annihilated in the other car. Nobody's even acknowledged him yet. And, uh, and I'll never forget this. This was the most bizarre thing. I've, one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. Like I said, there were a few people helping. But desperately trying to get him out, all of a sudden, somebody grabs my shoulder and pulls me to the side. And he's holding a five-gallon bottle of Alhambra water. And he hands it to me. And so I start pouring it on the guy. And then I start pouring it down the shattered windshield to quench the fire, which gave us enough time to, to bring it down to get him out. And this was amazing. So then I ran around to the other car and got that guy. His knees were folded over. It was a mess. His teeth were gone. It was sad. We got him out. We got him all out. Cops show up. Ambulance shows up. And everyone is standing around this thing watching. And I remember the guy that handed me the water. He had on the kind of clothing you wear when you ride a motorcycle. This was, this was during Easter time. It was fairly warm. And he had on all this leather and the chains and everything. And I remember him handing me the water. And the first thing I thought of, that was bizarre for a guy like that to hand me water. I don't know how he was carrying that on his bike. Some guys are extremely talented. And so after it was all said and done, all the people were there watching this thing. And I went to try to find him to thank him. And he was not there. What? Really? And I remember I started claiming that for myself. Like, Lord, I know that you sent an angel to rescue the situation so I wouldn't have to bear the guilt of letting that man burn alive or whatever. I mean, I came up with all these little scenarios. I was just praising God for it. But it was bizarre that everyone else was there that helped, but that man was gone. It was just weird. And I thought, maybe I was in the presence of an angel. I think angels do show up and do these things at times. They most certainly can. <clears throat> Interesting thing. Now let's look at 16 to 17. I'll never forget that. My wife wanted to kill me when I got back to the car. What if they would have blown up? You were willing to go help them and put your own family at risk. And then I remembered, yes, but I watched a special. What was it that I watched? Mythbusters. <laughs> You know, they, they dispel the myth that cars blow up when they're on fire. They normally don't. So I went out there like Captain America. I didn't have a problem with it. <laughs> right? It ain't going to blow up. We're good. She's like, but what if it did? It's like, yeah, it still could have, baby. Oh, gosh. Sorry. <laughs> Thank God for Mythbusters. Never had to do anything like that again. So they thought maybe it was his angel. Okay, 16 to 17. But Peter continued knocking. <laughs> Where'd she go? Come on. Be out here all night. I don't think he said that. He kept knocking, and when they opened, they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. I think amazed here is translated thambeo in Greek, which means there was a hint of fear in it. Like, you know when you're, like, blown away to the point where you know that there's no other way that this could have taken place, but God did it, and then there's a little bit of that holy fear that comes with that? You just kind of marvel at the idea of what just took place. Like, wow, I cannot believe this. That's what they did. They had a little bit of that thambeo amazement. They were astonished. They were blown away. They must have realized, wow, prayer works. <laughs> wow, I'm sure glad we committed ourselves to pray. We knew that there was no other way. And they prayed, 
and then immediately they realized their prayers were answered. And as they were discussing their amazement and how he had been brought out, Peter motioned to them with his hand and went like this. Shh. Chill out. Calm down. Calm down. And then he began to, he told them to be quiet, and then he began to describe to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He basically told them the gist of it. Man, I was in there, and I was chained. I was, you know, I had my shoes on. I didn't have my, my, my cloak on, and I was sound asleep, and, and I was woke up. He told them the whole story. He told them how it went down. They were probably just thinking, wow, man, probably made their thambeo a little more intense. Wow. Incredible. He told them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Well, who's James? James, in this verse, is the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, it's not the James that was killed. We didn't have another resurrection thing going on here. This is a different James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the pastor, or became, I don't know if he was at this point, but he actually became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Peter said, you know what? You need to go tell James, who's basically pastoring this church, what the Lord has done here. Share this with the church. Let everyone know what God has done and how he is infinitely powerful and how his power cannot be contested. He says, go tell the pastor and then tell the brothers. Who are the brothers? Just other believers, I believe. Maybe they're the brothers of the uh, circumcised clan. They've been referred to as brothers in past texts. Maybe it's the circumcised group. I don't know. And then it says he departed and went to another place. I think that's interesting. He didn't hang out at the upper room. He went on to another place. 18 to 19, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened or what had become of Peter. No little disturbance means all heck broke loose. What's going on here? Where's he at? You know, Herod was flipping out. <clears throat> he was flipping, man, because he was banking on this arrest and murder and martyr. He was banking on it because that was going to catapult his favor and everything else before the Jews. So he was tripping. He was upset. There was no little disturbance, man. How did he get out? How could you let him out? He was chained with two chains. He had guys on each side of him. He had guards at the thing. They went all over. It even says that he went out and searched for him. It says that Herod went out and searched for him. Why would a king, a guy at this level, go out and do a servant's work? Because he was banking on this arrest and death. This was the furtherance of his career and kingdom. He needed to stop the church to please the Jews. He needed this so badly. He himself went out and searched. He went out and looked. Can you imagine the king going out with his, you know, procession and, and, and you know, knock on every door, going to every barn, going to every pub. And they just went out and searched the city. The king is doing this. This illustrates his desperation in bringing the church to an end so that he could, what, satisfy and fulfill his own purposes. But the power of God cannot be contested, can it? He goes out 
and he does his thing. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the guards. And what did he do after examining them? Well, you're standing where you were supposed to be standing, and Fred, you're standing where you're standing. Now arrest them and let's have them killed. He suggested that they be put to death. You know he had to be put to death. That was a typical punishment for a guard who let a prisoner escape. And it's kind of sad to me that there was a loss of life here. Ponder for a moment the loss of life in that when God exercises his power, any enemy that stands in his way, he is willing to put to death. He does what he desires to do. And that's a difficult thing for me to wrap my mind around. I don't like the idea of human death. I don't like the idea of the warfare or any of those kinds of things. And these Roman centuries were put to death for their failure to guard him. And guess what? They had no guard choice. There was nothing they could do. You know, there are casualties in this war on both sides. James, and I'm talking about the spiritual war, I'm talking about this battle for the kingdom of God. There are casualties on both sides. James, beloved apostle, was killed with the sword. Roman guards were put to death. There are human casualties on both sides. But it's so much better to be on the side of God. That way, if you become a casualty, you enter into glory. <coughs> the antithesis of that is everlasting doom, everlasting punishment. You will spend eternity paying for your sin debt. I'd much rather be on the Lord's side and his casualty than on the enemy of the devil, who actually glories in the casualties of lost people. Satan loves it when people are destroyed. no little disturbance. Town broke out trying to find this guy. Peter's escape was a big deal. And then it says that he, referring to Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea to spend time there. Why? Well, some people, I, I couldn't believe commentary guys that write commentaries, but he needed a little vacation. How about the fact that he was filled with shame over his defeat? If Peter knew why Herod was doing what he was doing, then are we to believe that others in the community did not know what Herod was up to and why he was up to it? His entire cabinet, everyone knew what he was up to. And guess what? God's power cannot be contested. Guess what happened when somebody tried to contest his power? He was defeated. Wasn't he? The rightful response is to run to somewhere else to hide your face. Go to some other area where you can potentially escape the embarrassment of your defeat. I think there was much more to his leaving. I know for a fact that he had business to deal with up in that region. We're going to see it in the text. There's not a doubt in my mind he had business to deal with with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But at the same time, he has been bitterly defeated. 
by God. This is a man who is filled with pride, a man who uses his power to abuse others, to cause harm upon others, and he was shown up by God through an angel. That leads us to number two, God's punishment cannot be avoided. In some sense, the shame and embarrassment that Herod experienced from his defeat was a punishment in and of itself. But there's more to come. Verse 20. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. They all came with one heart, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for Food. Okay, so we see in the text that Herod also had some business things to take care of in this region. He went up into Caesarea to handle some business. Herod was actually, the text says, mad with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Why was he angry with them? Why was he frustrated with these people? Let me tell you why. Because these people were not under his rule and reign. This was an area, a province outside of his dominion. And yet, since Old Testament times, they depended upon him for food and supplies. And so Herod had to make sure that they always had provision, yet his rule and reign did not apply to them. And this man was a, a lustful man for power. He wanted these people brought under his rule and reign, and they were not. That's just the way it was. And so guess what? When they cried out for supplies, he got frustrated because they didn't have to obey anything else he did. He was agitated with them, and for whatever moment, a, a, a greater grievance had grown through them. And he goes up there to deal with some business, but he is now to the point of anger. These people are not under my rule and reign, and yet I have to feed them, and they're crying and whining about it. Now they've fashioned a meeting with me through Blastus, my chamberlain. I've got to go out and talk to them. He's frustrated. He was defeated. Down in Jerusalem by God. And now he's having to deal with this. 21 to 22. <clears throat> on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, obviously he had a throne there, and delivered a speech, an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. All right. Here's how it played out. On the appointed day, there was an appointment made where Herod Agrippa was to come out and deliver a speech to the people. Something maybe to rally them. I don't know how he was going to unify them or just pacify them. I don't know what he was going to do. They really weren't his people. But he was going to come out and speak to them and address the issue, the grievances, and, and, you know, and whatever it is. He goes out to do this, and the guy delivers an incredible oration. He goes out and he delivers a speech. This guy had this guy was a great communicator. He went out and blew their minds. He went out and said, people, and he did his thing. I mean, he was a king. They had to speak in public. Now listen to what the ancient historian Josephus said. He described the scene. Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it 
shone out after a surprising manner. Okay, the guy comes out in some pretty amazing clothes. They're glimmering, they're shimmering, mind-blowing outfit. Makes all the stars of Hollywood look like a bunch of schleps when they go up and walk the red carpet. This guy's dressed to the hilt. The sun hits him just right. He's sparkling and dazzling. And then he delivers an incredible oration speech. The people look at him and they say, these are not the words of a man. These are the words of a God. What did they do? They proclaimed him as a God. That's what they did. This man cannot be, this person cannot be, this king cannot be a mere man. Look at how he dazzles. Listen to his clever words, this incredible oration. They hailed him and worshipped him as a God, is what they did here. They said, the voice of a God and not of a man, exclamation point. What did Herod do? Did he say, hold on a second, I'm just a man. Wait a minute, a little bit off target here. Okay, appreciate that. I know I've got some bomb clothes on. This is our mind. I bought it. It cost a lot of money. I know I can speak, but just don't, 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 don't go there. Did he say any of those things? No. You know what he did? He basked in his own glory. He received their praises and applied them to himself, thinking of himself as a god. That's what he did. He reached the pinnacle at this particular moment, the pinnacle of self-worship. Oh, he was a worshiper of himself the entire time, but this was the pinnacle of it. Never before, I suspect, had anyone ever said these kinds of things. In fact, no Jew would ever do that back in where he came from. Are you kidding me? That was blasphemy, punishable by death by studying. No, these people were just like, <gasps> they were enamored by him, and he just sucked it up. He he reveled in it. He, oh, that's right. I am a God. Think of me as a God. That's what he did. He did not correct or rebuke the crowd for its idolatrous declaration. And look at what happened in 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. Did you hear what I said? He was struck down for not giving God the glory. He was struck down for not giving God the glory. And then it says, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. An angel of the Lord was sent by God at this very moment to strike Herod down. Why? For robbing God of glory. Now the phrase, eaten by worms, comes from the Greek root skolax, which means the head. This is going to be gross, but it's imperative that you understand what plays out here. This is a little biblical science which Aaron will really appreciate because he's a science guy. The Greek root is skolax, which means the head of a tapeworm. <clears throat> There were several kinds of tapeworms, but the most common was called the dog tape. And it could be found in sheep. What happens is dogs would eat the, eat the infected 
sheep meat and then pass these dog tapeworms on to their owners. Tapeworms came through feces and what would happen is someone would get on the air and you would pet your dog and somehow you would end up getting infected. I know it's gross, but this is what happened. I would imagine he probably had a couple of big great names. You know, he was a king. So I don't know if he had the pickings. Like the Chinese kings did. He probably had some big old bull mastiffs or something. Who knows? But this dog tape, once it, once the worm entered the human body, it would form a cyst on the liver. Dog tapes have both male and female reproductive reproductive organs, which means that they can multiply themselves. And, and so what happens is, during reproduction, they fill the cyst, or cysts, they can form multiple cysts, if there's multiple worms, they fill the cysts with up to two million eggs, which at some point become more scolats, or worms. Once the larvae mature, the cyst will burst, releasing the new dog tapes into the body. In many cases, the victims die immediately when the cysts rupture. A lot of times that's the cause of death because it's such a shock to the body. But in some cases, death takes several days as the new dog tapes begin to spread throughout the body and devour and eat up, chew up the organs all of the internal organs, wherever they land, they begin to eat. This makes death by a dog tape a slow and excruciating death. Now, according to Josephus, again, another reference, after Herod's cyst, and that's exactly what's playing out here, scolaps, Herod had these cysts on his liver, and Josephus says this about that. After Herod's cysts, or cyst ruptured, he lingered on for five days in horrific pain. And that is the meaning of the text. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And what does it say? He was struck down in illness. And what? What was that striking down? He had these cysts in him, or they were placed miraculously. More than likely he had them. The appointed time, the cyst broke, the worms spilled out into his abdomen and began to eat him, leading to what? Five days later, he breathed his last. What a horrific death. MacArthur comments, amid all of his pomp and majesty, he suffered an ignominious and shameful death. So ended the reign and life of the man who had dared to fight against God who dared to touch two of God's apostles. His crime for which he was executed was that he did not give glory to God. Listen to me. That is the very crime for all the unregenerate, all those outside of Christ who reject God. Everyone who rejects God, who takes glory upon themselves, rejects, rejects the glory of God, will be condemned in similar manner. Not every person who turns their back on God dies of dog tapes, but every person who robs God of glory is ultimately destroyed. God's punishment 
cannot be avoided. Lastly, God's purposes cannot be frustrated. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Wow, that's the whole point. The word of God, the gospel was increasing. Herod steps in and tries to stop that. And now we read, guess what? It didn't work. The gospel increased. The word of God multiplied. Herod declared war on the gospel. He attempted to bring it to an end, but he was judged and destroyed. And the gospel increased and multiplied. It spread. Why? Because the gospel is the purpose of God. God's purposes cannot be frustrated. Because the gospel is the purpose of God. And his purposes cannot be stopped, hindered, or frustrated. All throughout history, men have fought against God by trying to bring the gospel to an end. And all throughout history, men have always tried to frustrate the purposes of God. And all throughout history, men have either been destroyed for doing so or converted. Think of Saul. In Barnabas 25, and Barnabas and Saul returns is one more example of how it progressed, how things continued. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. What happened here? They were in Antioch preaching the gospel. They came down to bring supplies to the Christians down in the southern region. And guess what? The text says they returned. Their trip, their ministry was not hindered at all by what Herod did. Bottom line. They went on and continued to do what they did. They went back up to their area. And this time they brought more help with them. They brought John Mark. Ending thoughts. Bible teaches explicitly that all people are sinners. That all people fall short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that our sin makes us enemies of God. God is holy and perfect. And he created us to be so. Um, but our first parents sinned and then passed their sin to all of humanity. That includes you and I. And so here we are, sinners and enemies of God. We actually war against God. Our lifestyles war against his holiness and truth. We war against him when we despise the Gospel and, and do what we can to regress or to repress it and to stop its advancement when we shuck it and cast it aside, which sinners do. The Bible teaches that only those who are hidden in Christ are not at war with God. To have Jesus means to have peace with God. To have Jesus means that there is peace between those who have Jesus and God, that there is no warfare whatsoever for the Christian. <coughs> Even when they go on their little fits and rants and spells of disobedience, they are not at war with their father. They are seen as disobedient children who need to repent. Now you might be thinking to yourself that your life doesn't seem to reflect some sort of warfare against God. If you do not have Christ, make no mistake, you are at war with Him. But so often we think that since life is good, we may not know Jesus, but how can you consider your life to be at odds with God? How can we consider ourselves to be at war with God even though we don't have Jesus? My life is good. I have my health. I have money. I have a 
a terrific spouse or girlfriend, fiance. I have a, a great job. I have possessions and a home, a roof over my head. I have food. I have beautiful children. Now, the unregenerate mind does not believe that it is enmity with God, that it is at war with God because it looks upon the blessings and things that it has and it says there's no way I can have a problem with God because look at all that I have. Unregenerate mind says to itself, with all of these things, all of these great, wonderful things, this good life, how could I be an enemy of God? How could I be at war with God? Surely my life would look differently if that were so. May I remind you that it is never wise to try to estimate your position with God by merely evaluating the good of your life. God causes the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. We heard that read earlier. That's his prerogative. That's his economy. But rain, the rain doesn't negate his justice. The rain doesn't negate his wrath. The rain doesn't symbolize that you do not have sin and are opposed to God. The rain falling upon your house on your life, this blessed rain, doesn't equate to deliverance or some form of atonement for your sin. No. Just take, I want to make this point and end with this. You're not in Christ and you have all of these blessings and things. And you say to yourself, there's no way that I could be at odds with God. Look at my life. It would be different. Now let's take your lifetime and add up all of your positions, all of your possessions, all of your money, your homes, all of the blessings, everything that you have. Take that and, and spread that out. Multiply that by every year and then add it all up and, and get to the end of your lifetime. You've got, what, 70 plus years maybe? Add up everything that you've ever earned. You've got, you've got a pretty good small fortune. Now multiply all that you have, your lifetime's worth of stuff. Now multiply that by 20 lifetimes. That's an incredible amount of stuff and money and possessions and blessings. Guess what? After 20 lifetimes of accumulating and massing, you have less than half of what Herod Agrippa owned. I did the math. He was worth $200 million. In 20 lifetimes, you were going to make nowhere near that. And what happened to him? I would imagine he thought to himself, how could I possibly be at odds with God? Especially since the simple philosophy of that day was that if you had a lot of things and you had a blessed life, you were saved. You had God's favor. That's what the Jews believed then. That's what they believe today. Herod fell right into that same line of thinking. How could I possibly be at war with God, at odds with God? Look at my kingdom. Look at my wealth. Twenty of our lifetimes equate to not even half of his kingdom. How foolish it is for us to try to estimate our position with God by taking a look, by evaluating what we have. What you have, what you've been given, the rain that falls upon your house, those blessings do not symbolize salvation. Believe it or not, Pentecostal theology was alive and not so well back in this day, just as it is today, because it contradicts everything that I'm saying right now. The more that you have, the more of God's favor you have, the more blessing, the more salvation you have, if that were even possible. We need to be cautious and look at Agrippa's example. None of us in our entire lifetime, times 20, times 50 lifetimes, will amass what he had. Do not make the mistake of thinking 
that you are okay with God because of what you have. If you do not have Jesus, you are not okay with God. You are his enemy. And there is an appointed time for him to either by grace save you or destroy you. And make no mistake, he will achieve his purposes. They cannot be hindered or thwarted. He does what he does. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you are not in Christ, come to the simple realization that you are an enemy of his. That you are no different than a grandma. Come to terms with the reality that you will face the same judgment that he did. It may not come through a word. You know where Herod is right now? Paying for his sin debt. The simple fact is, is that he had a savior that came to his own nation to pay the sin debt for him. And he never put two and two together. In fact, he warred against that savior. And make no mistake, if you're not in Christ, you are warring against that savior. Every sin is a declaration of war. Friend, if you're not in Christ, you need to receive the gift of salvation this morning. Christ. He will wash you of all your sin. He will take your weapons and destroy them. Fill you with his love. Fill you with his presence. Fill you with his power to live for him. It's the most incredible thing. The abundant life. Life eternal. I want to urge you to make that decision this morning. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Church, if you know Jesus Christ, Rejoice in his salvation. Rejoice in what he's done. Realize, church, speaking to believers, where Agrippa was headed, where he went, that's where you were going. And he spared you. What a marvelous thing he's done. How should we live our lives in, in light of that truth? Crazy for him. Like Rhoda, are you out of your mind? Yeah, I'm nuts for Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the word. I pray that those who do not yet know you, if there are some here, that they would come to know you. Continue to build up your church, Lord. And we haven't gone long today. That was not good. Realizing that we need to do communion, Lord. And I pray that these people would go ahead and enjoy that moment. We do need to sit and acknowledge you. And we need to realize what you've done. This is a moment where we can physically sit down and take elements that represent what you've done finished work that you achieved on our purpose, or for our, for us. Your purpose was to do that for us. That was your product. We love you for that. And we take these elements and celebrate. Broken body, blood spilled, the remission of our sin. And may we also reflect upon the glorious resurrection that secured our salvation, secured hope of glory for us, future resurrection, secured for us power to live for you. Might be people in here just thinking that, man, I, I want Jesus, but I, I don't know if I'll be able to, to, to live for him. Yes, you will, friend. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and changes you. You'll be a new creation who will long for and thirst for righteousness. Make it so, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Help yourselves to the elements, friends.